0: Hello podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in today to JJ Meets World. This is your host with the most JJ of JJ Meets World. Uh, you guys are going to be pretty interested in this episode, especially if you like nerdy, geeky things. Have you ever seen Game of Thrones? Well, we've got some guy who is involved with a company that makes chain mail. That's right, the stuff that they put on so they don't get stabbed, even though every character seems to get stabbed anyway in that show. Uh, we also talk about some other great nerdy things, such as Magic the Gathering and the type of stuff that got me beat up in high school, but now seems to be chic, because you can find it in every Target everywhere. Uh, Tucker and I also get into a political conversation about guns and the new Ghostbusters movie. You want to know how those two tie together? Well, you're going to have to listen to this episode of JJ Meets World. One, two, three,
1: four. One, two, three, four. J.J. Gordon sort of like that Indiana
0: Jones and that he's
1: always sniffing out his next adventure.
0: Yes, he is! He's always interviewing guests so he can have them on his show and they can talk about pop culture, arts, and leisure. J.J. <laughs> has his flag unfurled and he likes his french fries curled and he's fun and then he twirls as he goes to meet the world. He will march into the rain even if his ankles sprain. Take a peek inside his brain. This podcast is called J.J. Meets
2: World.
0: I've never had a job that requires me to work so hard that I could break a bone. I've done a lot of jobs that require heavy lifting. I've done a lot of jobs that require long hours. But nothing where the day-to-day threat could involve breaking a bone. So let's use an example here. Being a cop. You know, you're chasing down a perp. And maybe, you know, the your trench coat gets caught on something, and you got to call back, and you got to be like, Olivia! Um, I mean, most of my knowledge of police work comes from Law & Order, SVU. But I've never really had to, you know, even like a, you know, what would be another good example? Like somebody, like a wrestler. Right. You know, somebody who has
1: to use physicality to intimidate. Right. You've never taken a job where You risked life and limb. Yeah,
0: have you? No. Good. Why would I do that? I know. We're sitting here in our comfy zip-up hoodies (laughs) and enjoying the fruits of our labors. I'm going to be eating a Snickers (laughs) bar here in a minute as soon as I can warm it up to an appropriate temperature I like.
1: (laughs) Um, Let's put it this way. If our grandfathers met us when they were in World War 2, they would have been very disappointed. Very in disappointed, us. without a doubt. If we were on the Oregon Trail, we would have died within the first couple of days.
0: Oh, without and like not from something cool like dysentery. No, like we would have been just killed by the other travelers cuz they'd be like these guys are just too weak. Yeah. I would have accidentally shot you while hunting. <laughs> And then I couldn't even bring you back because you're above
1: the allotted amount of weight right, that you right. can carry for meat. If you can get those little BB pellets to actually pierce the height of any of the animals around you. Let's be honest. So you you played Oregon Trail because you wanted to get to the hunting minigame. Yeah, mini that was game. the best part of and it. And whenever that minigame was over, you'd go, I'm on the trail again. You know,
0: so as a young child playing that game, I really learned about what greed is. Because okay. my greed came from I just like to kill things in that game. And so I'd shoot bears. I wouldn't bother with rabbits or squirrels or anything like that. I'd shoot, like, bear and deer and uh-huh. stuff like that. And then would be like, you shot 1,800 pounds, but you can only carry 22 pounds <laughs> of food back. <laughs> and so you're leaving these giant, you know, mounds of meat right. out there. That is something I think is a
1: real bummer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Back in probably the late 90s, I want to say, mm-hmm. someone made a ROM of of their copy of Oregon Trail, like the original one. Yeah, the original one, but so you could play it on a newer computer. Um, but with it came some data from one. You know how you could stop at graveyards mm-hmm. and you could leave messages. Yep. So w- their game, they had stopped at this one graveyard and they had written on a grave pepperoni and cheese. because of the Tombstone commercials. Mm -hmm. What do you want on your Tombstone, right, was the catchphrase. But they misspelled pepperoni, I think. It's missing a P. And so all these people who, like, first started playing, you know, after our generation, who first started playing the Oregon Trail, all have this copy that says pepperoni and cheese, and it's become kind of an inside joke.
0: When I played it, we had a laptop, our first laptop in my house. And, I mean, this thing weighed probably 70 pounds. You know, Yeah, yeah you wouldn't want one. to keep it on your lap at all. No, it got so hot. Yeah. But so <laughs> we had this computer, and we had, uh, like, version 3.0 of the Oregon Trail. And one of the things you could do in it is you could journal. Okay. So let's say someone breaks their arm. You could journal in the story of what happened and how they broke their arm. <laughs> paint, as, paint the picture. As an adult – I went back, and I bought on eBay a power cord so I could juice this baby up. And I mean, I was probably 24, 25. Wow. And so I powered it up, and I was reading one of my trail journals. <laughs> and now this is an example of the people who – because you could also name the people who are coming with you. Right. I always played the banker because he had the most money at the beginning. Oh, I don't know if I ever thought of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, if you play, like, a farmer, I think you start off with more food, but I'm always going to go hunting, bam, 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 bam.
1: I never had the FAQ.
0: So it was, like, my party members were, like, JJ is the leader, and then it was Uma Thurman, Cindy Crawford, and then at one point, I think I just put um, the lady from Batman Forever, who, of course, is Nicole Kidman, and so I was taking a harem with me. And uh, I would write stories about like, oh, you know, Uma Thurman has dysentery.
1: And this so, is hilarious because when I would play Oregon Trail, it would be me and then girls I had crushes on in school. See, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, but I would only use one letter for their name, just because, oh. just in case someone's because you're you're in a computer lab, yep, right, and you can't. You, so you want someone to lean discreet. over and be like Gretchen, woo. R- right? Right. So I would usually usually I would use like the first. Letter of their name and if anyone asked me, I had a a story all cocked up about how that was a weird word to use right there. Story cocked up? Cooked up. That's what I'm trying to say. Freud was right. Freud was right. (laughs) Freud was right.
0: Were you using that term as a
1: young elementary school student? Freud or cocked? Both. (laughs) Neither. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I had a whole story about how I was gonna explain away the the letters. Right. (laughs) Because you don't want you know that you're gonna get caught at some point. Somebody yeah. you know somebody's gonna be like, Hey, sucker. Well, I, I had it a little rough in that I got into girls before most of the boys in my grade, because I hit puberty like two years prior to most of the boys in my really? grade. I was a very early bloomer. Is that why
0: you can shave and have a beard in like an hour and a half yep. after that? Oh yeah.
1: I'm just swimming in puberty still. It like it never stopped. The puberty train just kept going full,
0: full steam,
1: whole so, hog.
0: D- do you think the term puberty came
1: first or pubic hair? Uh, I'm going to take a shot in the dark here and say puberty. Yeah. I've always wondered that. Because I bet that's totally wrong. I bet pubis, uh, it, it pubic bone, pubic. I bet that it was a scientific term before we had the terminology for the phase in one's life. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, Maybe it's the opposite way around. Did you ever watch the show Mad Men?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love the show Mad Men. And whenever someone brings up the hair down there, I think of, he had chewing gum in his pubis. Uh, Because that was the first time I had ever heard the word pubis before. Um, It's also
1: one of the best scenes, that fist fight between Lane mm -hmm. and, uh, is it Peter? No. Peter, yeah. Peter, yeah. It's pretty sweet because we've got that amazing Roger Sterling. Uh, t- two amazing Roger stirring lines one when he's like I know cooler heads should prevail but does anyone else want to see, see this, this yeah. and then when he's like I don't know about you two but I had Lane
0: yeah. <laughs> afterwards and he uh, Lane who is British boxes in that Oxford style of boxing <laughs> where you know you got your hands out there versus like that um, that American like hulking style you're a
1: grimy little pimp <laughs>
0: <laughs> Um, I oh boy You know, there's another show where you take, like, a Peter Campbell. He never had a job that required him to do anything that was, you know, going to require the loss of life or limb, as you said earlier. Right, right. But then one of the greatest characters of all time, Don Draper, is from a life where that was a possibility. I mean, he watched his stepfather. No, he watched his father get kicked by a horse and die.
1: Yep. And that was that was in an era where if you made it to 40 you were like damn, you've yeah. had a good life. He's old. yeah, He's old, old as, guy. Old as f. hasn't been killed by a war yet. That's weird. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm glad we don't live in that time. I'm glad we live in a a a, a, a post draft country. Era? Yeah. Yeah. I mean the selective service exists we could technically be drafted or, or men, I, you and I wouldn't be at this point. We're just, it would just be like the Oregon trail. They'd be like, no, nah, it's, it'd be dangerous to bring you guys along cause you're just too shitty. But, um, but I, 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 it, it's obviously we're at a point where it just makes no sense to throw everyone's children into the meat grinder that way.
0: I had, uh, I had some youthful ignorance, that caused a problem in my house regarding the draft. Oh, um, when you're 18, yeah. You ha- when I turned 18, you had to register. Right, right. Well, I put it off. And I okay. put it off.
1: Okay, and I put it off.
0: And I don't know why. Maybe it's literally it's,
1: signing a document. Yeah, <laughs> and
0: And it, maybe it was, I was lazy. And it, I it did it been, at
1: school. I think to a recruiter was handing out donuts. Yeah, right. I mean, easy.
0: I had plenty of opportunities to get a keychain. Right. But I just put it off and put it off and put it off. I don't know why anymore. I remember at the time, I thought, like, oh, I'm 18. Uh, forget it. Until one day, knock, knock, knock on the door, my dad comes downstairs and says, um, the army is here for you. <laughs> and I said, what? And he goes, the army is here with your draft card. <laughs> and you need to sign it. <clears throat> and sure enough, I went upstairs, two fully uniformed members of our U.S. military- are standing there with my registration card uh-huh. that I, that they're like they're like, hey, you turned 18 five months ago. You need to fill this out right now. Uh-huh. And I was like, damn, <laughs> don't take me.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> but it's weird though, because what is it? What is there a, is there another use for that registration than the draft?
0: No. No, absolutely not. Other than I'm, they're trying to, you know, so that, that, that's, just just make sure that you do it. Right, I mean, so that's I, the
1: thing is, like, they, they have your social security number already. They know you exist. They've got your school records. They knew who you were and that you hadn't signed, right? So what exactly is happening when they come to your door or when you go and sign a document for them mm-hmm. to, quote, unquote, register for the draft? If the draft is... Men of a certain fighting age of 18 and older, then why isn't it just... Yeah, you're just automatically and Why this uh, this middle ground?
0: You know, that's a good question. And are, are we wasting too many resources with something like this?
1: Maybe it's just part of the leftover bureaucracy from days gone by. Or maybe there is more... Um, you know, we need Shelly here. Shelly yeah. would be able to tell us what's what about this.
0: I would also say, too... It's not. It's it's a good. It's a. It's a good wake up call to the fact that you need to be responsible for your government and your government's responsible for Mm -hmm. you, especially as you become an adult. Right? Yeah. They're asking you to do one thing. They're not asking you to, you know, rise up and all of a sudden become, you know, a full fledged adult, even though you're eighteen, because they're going to keep you from drinking for a while. Right. Right. (laughs) Um. But they want you to be responsible enough to say, like, here's something that you asked me to do. I'm going to do it. It's done. Yeah. At the same time, now they're taking more responsibility for you as an adult saying, we're allowing you to vote.
1: Right. We're allowing you to have a say in what's going on in the right. world. Right. You know, if anything, they should be contacting contacting you to register you to vote.
0: Yeah, you know? that's yeah, absolutely. Your that's, draft card should come with a registration to vote card.
1: That's what it should be. So not only are we making you sign this document um, to to make yourself eligible for us to force you into a war zone, but then we're also giving giving you this document just showing to you and reaffirming to you that you do have rights and 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 some individual powers over your person and your future when you live here.
0: The, oh, we're going to get very political very fast. Oh well, Let's not one. get political. Let's, let's go yeah. in a different direction. No, no, but I've got an idea. I mean, here's just a concept for you. <laughs> what if to own a gun, I mean, you we had to right? vote in every state election? Uh-huh. So if you miss an election and you don't vote in it, it doesn't matter who you vote for. But if you
1: don't have proof of vote, they're like,
0: mm, OK, well, we're going to suspend your right to own a gun
1: for a little bit. <laughs> Really what I think it is is what it should be is gun owners get like coupons to Dairy Queen when they go vote. Mm, okay. you know, you think Dairy Queen is very pro I don't even know. Pro-gun. I have no fucking idea. Um, <laughs> I don't even know you know what's funny is we're talking about gun control essentially, and that's the play that's going on at theater B right now mm-hmm. um, at the time of this recording in October of 2018, church and state is happening at theater B right now, which is about the conversation about gun control. Look, it, do you like how I it
0: deflected? I did. Like how I, I deflected and not didn't take Because I a was spam? gonna say like, if only we could have embraced weapons like in Magic <laughs> the Gathering, <laughs> and instead of having gun control, we were having wand control, right? Or oh, that guy can only know five spells.
1: Yeah, you know what? You know what gun control kind of is like to me. What? It's kind of like, um, let's see, what's a good example here? Uh, the new Ghostbusters movie. Right? The new what? The new Ghostbusters movie that came out a few years ago? Oh, I don't know if I know about this. So the reason it's like the new Ghostbusters movie is because emotions surrounding the topic have run so high on all sides that it's hard to have an honest conversation with someone about the movie or to be able to give an honest opinion about, about that topic without someone who either disagrees with you or for whatever reason decides they want to step up to you. And so it's like this hot potato, right? It's like it's so dramatic. <coughs> There's so many people who get upset about it for different reasons that if someone tosses you the hot potato, you kind of want to just toss it al- toss it along. Who do you know who liked the new Ghostbusters movie?
0: Who's Mike Schultz, I
1: believe, it? liked the new Ghostbusters movie.
0: Delete Mike Schultz's episode <laughs> or edit him out of it.
1: You can I don't leave if,
0: you can leave Val in there. I don't
1: know if Val liked it or not. It Mike made a point to make comments about it on on Twitter. I, I don't want to put words or reviews in anyone's mouth or head, but I'm pretty sure Mike likes it and I have no problem with him liking it. You don't like the fact that he likes it? No, I don't. I, I have don't. I have problems with other movies that Mike doesn't like. So yeah. I don't worry about the Ghostbusters. <laughs> right?
0: That's just one where I I feel it was so lazy. It was just it, they were like we're going to rely on the name. We got these funny women. Right. We don't need to put effort into you know a, a
1: good storyline. They, they, the 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 powers that be who made the movie squandered it, squandered that cast mm-hmm. because that's an fucking amazing cast.
0: I agree wholeheartedly.
1: Amazing cast,
0: and I can't believe. And not only that, but it's an amazing cast. It's an amazing franchise right. that people were excited to see again. I was excited to see it again, and I, I mean. I like most of Paul Feig's other work, uh-huh. but I thought this one just dripped with laziness. Right. And this, for the first time ever, this could have used a couple other, like, ghost writers on the script. <laughs> like, a couple other people, like, a couple other super fans could
1: have taken a pass and been like,
0: whoa, whoa, whoa one second. Right,
1: right. So, I would have loved to see, like, a tina faye take over like a vehicle like mm-hmm. that you know she I, would have kicked ass at the writing of that and the 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 show running of that or whatever you want to call it
0: i also think you know you're talking about this you're making this movie that's female centered with female ghostbusters and like it or not you created a narrative where you're talking about this is you know female centered female driven uh-huh um yeah. And I think at one point they were like, "Ooh, we shouldn't have just focused so much on on that aspect in our promotion that you know the girls are taking over." But if that's the case, the girls should have taken over, mm-hmm. and you should have you should have picked a female director and a female writer. And why not, right? Right. Uh, I also think that the cover of the Ghostbusters theme done by whoever it was, whatever band happened to be hot
1: at that moment, did just a piss poor job. And poor Ray Parker Jr. (laughs) As far as the marketing of it goes, though, I guess I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I don't know how they could have avoided talking about, you know, uh, girl power or women empowerment or the fact that it's all women now. Because it's obvious. And and not to say that you're disagreeing with this notion, but it is it is it is true that in Hollywood and in our culture, if you make a movie with an all-male cast, you go, hey, what a great movie. And if you make a movie with an all-female cast, suddenly it's a choice, right? Like, we're willing to accept an all-male Ghostbusters or whatever because we're pretty much used to that, right? We're used to things like that. Um, but if you make an all-female cast, unless it's like a charlie's angels that we're already sort of aware of then suddenly it's like wow you know it's it's this different thing so i think you know you got to lean into it and i wasn't bothered by any of that i thought that was great i'm actually uh pro the idea of making more of those movies with that cast right that first one didn't work but they can make other movies that would work i think with that movie when i watched it i was bored it just wasn't well written it wasn't well directed the cast was squandered, and whatever whatever happens behind the scenes to get there, I think we see it a lot. But the thing that was shitty was after the fact, if, like you or like me, if we were to say out loud, wow, I didn't like that movie, there was someone always waiting in the wings to call you a sexist, yep. right? Like like battle lines had been drawn even before the movie came out because you've got shitty dudes online going after women, and you got people who want to respond to that, and it gets nasty and acrimonious, acrimonious, and then we all have to kind of wade through it. So it's a topic that it's hard to to meet someone on the street and have a honest conversation with them without risking the chance of either being yelled at because, oh, you're a sexist or being yelled at because, oh, you're a social justice warrior – you're just saying that because of politics and blah blah blah. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Um,
0: this is a long intro. We're 20 minutes in. Yeah, let's 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 get let's get back to the point at hand. The the reason people are really tuning in here, not for the politics of Ghostbusters or gun control right. or Oregon Trail, right? <laughs> um, we've got a great guest today, and we get into some uh, pretty amazing nerdy topics, uh, including things such as chain mail, Magic the Gathering, and just about anything else I can think of that uh, takes some nerddom uh, in the world. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of JJ Meets World with our special guest, Brian Hellevang.
1: JJ
2: Meets World.
0: Brian, welcome to JJ Meets World. We're excited to have you here today. Happy to be here. So let's get into this. When Tucker was first telling me, like, we're going to bring in my friend Brian and we're really, I'm really excited about this. I said, Well, what are we going to talk about? And he goes, Well, he works for a company that has a
2: pretty interesting product that they produce. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I <clears throat> currently work for a place called We've Got Mail. Uh, based in Ada, Minnesota, about forty-five minutes from Fargo here, and we make chainmail and chainmail jewelry kits. So the ch- and we're not
0: talking about the type of thing where I've got to send a letter to nine other people or no. I'm going to be cursed in love, right?
2: Well, we should probably get into that too. But, <laughs> but no, the uh, little metal rings to make like armor and stuff, um, and our so we manufacture the rings in a bunch of different materials. And then we also make little pre-made jewelry kits where you get a little box that has all the components you need to make a bracelet and instruction manual, kind of like a Lego set. And you get everything you need. You can make bracelets, necklaces, stuff like that. And when That's you say cool.
1: we've got mail, W-E-A-V-E?
2: Yes, which uh, in the chain mailing world is like the name of a different way of putting chain mail together. And then mail is M-A-I-L-L-E as in chain mail, which... Some layers of puns which I appreciated when I when I saw the job listing um, my boss kind of hates it though because we sell all over the world and that works in English and English only <laughs> and so she said you know if she ever knew it was going to be more than just a 10 hour a week side thing that what she thought it was going to be when she started she would have named it something else entirely because it just does not translate to any other country. Sure
0: something like we build armor. There something, you go. Much you know, much like cleaner that. yeah.
2: Yep. Um so uh, what do you what do you do for the company I'm a graphic designer I guess I'm the creative department so graphic design I do all of our product photography I'm kind of the de facto IT department as well and uh,
0: how do you give me some tips for photographing chainmail
2: We've got this really cool light box that I just am completely in love with it's probably about a two foot by two foot box that has LED panels on all nine sides so you can control. Are all six sides, I guess you can control all the lighting independently, um, and it just makes for really easy stuff. But the big thing with chainmail, especially with aluminum like polished aluminum that we use, silver things like that, is reflections are just the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. So, thankfully for us, the light box is totally white. But if you're shooting in a more conventional setup, photographers often have to wear like full crime scene white pullover jumpsuits so that they're not reflecting onto the metal and stuff like oh, that. Wow.
0: See now, those are the type of things that people don't think about when they're cruising through the internet and they're looking on, you know, uh, you know, some website and they're like, "Oh yeah, look at this awesome thing." Well, it probably took like ten hours to get the perfect shot of somebody doing that type of thing.
2: Mm-hmm. And a big thing, like for us, is if we do a photo of a bracelet, is you know the rings are all just an, a ring with a split in it, so you can attach them together and use pliers and twist them shut. And so when we do a Final photo of a bracelet that we're going to sell. I have to go through and edit Photoshop out every one of those little seams on the rings. And so, you know, we've had bracelets that have 800 rings in them or whatever. And you hopefully you spend a lot of time beforehand with like literally have dental tools to like spin them around to try to hide them in the overlaps as much as possible. But past that, it's, you know, often a day or two's worth of work just to edit out all of the little edges so that you don't see anything that looks perfectly perfectly clean and and great
1: do you feel like a food photographer from mcdonald's gluing on the individual sesame seeds uh, seeds and
2: it's at least not that bad right is normally the photo itself is pretty straightforward but you have to get pretty creative if you get weird one ring just didn't quite close right and now it's off by in real life you know a millimeter or two but blown up at that scale it's off by 50 percent from where it should be and you're like trying to Create rings out of nowhere and make up what would be behind it, and and uh, it's, it's a time tedious work doing stuff like that, but it's also you kind of just get into a rhythm of just working on it, and it's not as bad as it could be, I suppose.
0: So your customer base must be a pretty, I mean, they're coming to you for a very specific product, so... They must have some pretty specific questions when they email in. Uh, have you had anybody who said, "Hey, thanks, this chainmail saved my life." I was recently in a knife fight in Brooklyn. Uh, I, was wearing, I was wearing some of your product underneath my shirt, uh, and I'm okay.
2: I not that not since I've been there at least, um, but I do know like as far as customer base is concerned. Before I started, but like Game of Thrones has been a client and bought a bunch of chainmail from us, and. You know, a lot of people use it and are like crafters that buy stuff and then they make the jewelry that they sell at craft fairs and things like that. But, you know, we've also had if we can't make something, my boss is just great ton of experience doing chain mail and, and jewelry making and things like that. And so she'll give people pointers. We had a guy come in last Halloween that had wanted to make a chainmail tunic out of some kind of steel we couldn't produce um, for whatever reason. So he hand wound them cut them all by hand and made this like full tunic that was just going underneath his like link from legend of Zelda, Halloween costume that was going to barely stick out. It was can't remember how many hundreds of hours he said he had put into it. And it was just like completely nuts, but he had come there, you know, and we didn't have what he needed, but they gave him some pointers. And then he just, every day he's a firefighter in town here. And every day after work would just go home and like work on his shirt while he's watching TV or whatever. That is awesome. And we're really living in a time when
0: things like chain mail are having a resurgence. It used to be something where you'd have to find it in the back of a comic book, and maybe there was one like effects warehouse somewhere uh, in California that could do it, but it was going to be very costly, and it was going to be months away. And now we've got something where, you know, you've got a, this business in Ada has popped up. And I'm sure that there's a bunch of other things. There's someone who's making the tips to, you know, steal uh, uh, javelins
2: and things like that. Uh, so it's a cool time to live, isn't it? It really is. And it's, yeah, it's nuts. We're the third biggest chainmail producer in the world. And like, Whoa. number one is owned by the nation of Pakistan. And then there's <laughs> a company up in Canada. Um, and then there's us as like, which I just never would have guessed, you know, in Ada that that's where we are. But my yeah, my boss was a she's a goldsmith by trade um, and always done chainmail stuff. She actually did a lot of the armor design and work for A Knight's Tale, the Heath Ledger nah. movie, and uh, she worked on that. And then she was yeah, living in Arizona doing goldsmith work, and then married a farmer from Ada who didn't want to leave the farm, so she moved up here and retired, and then got bored immediately and started making chain mail for some former students version. It just blew up into this company, but she's just unbelievably fascinating.
1: We're going to have to bring her in. Yeah. Onto this podcast.
2: Yeah, I bet she would do it. She's, awesome. Yeah, she's we'll put really in a interesting.
1: Good, put in a good word for us, man. I will. We'd love to have her on.
2: How long have you been working for him? I've been there since May of last year, so about a year and a half. So what did you do before that? Uh, previous to that, I worked with Tucker at Poker Night in America. and Poker Night in America, Whoa. I think that every time, <laughs> thanks to you. All, yeah. <laughs> and uh, previous to that, I was a graphic designer at Shields for a while, and then for uh, about a decade, I've worked at Paradox Comics and Cards. So this
0: opportunity to work for a company that's making chain mail must be kind of like a small dream come true.
2: It's great. Like, I, I love my job. I, you know... At the time was a little eerie of the it's about a fifty minute commute for me every morning to and from, which just turned into great podcast time and but yeah, my great boss time is to great. listen to
1: JJ Meets World. What
2: a plug. Look at you. <laughs> Such a professional here. Patreon.com slash JJ meets <laughs> <laughs> Um but yeah, my boss is great. Like the people I work with are great. And it's just it's a fun small business where like I said, I'm kind of the de facto IT department because someone needs to do it and I'm the most qualified somehow. And I, I love that, and that's the thing I like you know I liked about Paradox, liked about Poker Night, and the thing at Shields for me that was a little tough is I had a very defined small role because the company was so big, and mm-hmm. I'd much rather be the wear 15 different hats and do a bunch of different stuff. Well,
0: that's awesome. Um, and Paradox is uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary yeah, it's- uh, right now. That's very exciting. Congratulations to the whole crew over there and to Rich. I mean- there, there are times where I was like, oh, gosh, the next time I drive by, it's going to have a you know going out of business sign. Um, but the thing that I like about the nerd community is they are loyal. They are loyal, loyal, loyal. They know the people who helped them along the way. How many people – like we just had Alex Davey on the podcast mm-hmm. a little bit ago, and Alex Davey will owe some of his current success to – Rich showing him these comic books and introducing him to Dungeons and Dragons and these things that he is now using in his full-time career designing a Star Wars tabletop game. Um, and I know uh, more than a handful of other people who had a similar experience. And so that's nice about the nerd community is they're going out to stores and they're not just buying things online online sure they will do some eBay work out there because there's some things that are out of print that you really want to have like a first edition D&D Dungeon Masters book um but I really love and it must be it must be a lot of fun too to be at Paradox and you've you know you've seen the resurgence now and that we are in a renaissance for board games
2: is that is that neat to watch that evolution I loved it it I mean it was the great thing about working at Paradox it was like every day of work was super fun and I was just on a anniversary podcast over there as well, you know, celebrating the years. And a thing that just hit me when I was talking about it was just, I love that I got to do it for work. I got to a thing, do a thing, even though it was retail that like legitimately made a really big, important difference in a lot of people's lives. Like, if you're having just a terrible week, whatever, you go and you, you're at comics, you find that game you wanted to play, whatever, and it just, like, makes your life a little bit better.
1: They've built a community there.
2: They really have, and it's it's just nuts to see how we were joking of when they moved upstairs, you know, it started in that tiny room in the basement. With the Upstairs is the current location they've been in for most of the time. The store's been open. The game room used to be, it fit six tables, and it was super tiny, and we were joking that when you'd have two games going on at once, I used to play the Star Wars card game and we were kind of the second class below the magic players. (laughs) We were often just playing on the floor in between the aisles of the comic racks. (laughs) And now they've got the event center that fits, you know, hundred and fifty people into whatever and between that the expanded game room and the store, they still like are squeezing chairs in on their weekly board game <laughs> nights and stuff like that. You know the old
1: concept of like the corner store and in a small town you go there and there's always like members of the community in there hanging out and there's always someone sipping their coffee or talking to the person, the old proprietor behind the thing. Paradox is the only place in town that I know of that has that vibe to it when you walk in. It's like, yeah, this is sort of a community store. You can tell that like there's always eight to ten people in there. So often half of them are just hanging out, playing games, reading comics, talking to the guys behind the counter. And the guys behind the counter have perfected the art of talking to whoever comes mm-hmm. in who wants to talk their their ears off. It.
2: it I mean, there were there are occasionally times that it's a struggle when you're behind the <laughs> counter and you're you're trapped there. You can't get out, and you know a person's just. 15 minutes into whatever conversation and you're just like, I need to do something. And I'm not gonna say that I never dialed the store for my cell phone to get out of a conversation before that may or had may or right. may not have happened a couple of times. <laughs> but for the most part, it was great towards the community thing too. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen somebody's looking at the board game shelf and they're kind of wondering about a game and someone just, customer in the store walks up and is like, Hey, I've played this game and that game. Like, what do you want to know? And Things like that happened all the time. I just the thing I thought was just absolutely
1: great. It's, I feel like they've, uh, Rich and Company, they've basically they've found a way to make it work because you've told me before, and I think the audience actually be interested in hearing this, how incredibly difficult it is to make money as a comic book shop. Can you
2: talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and you know, I was never the one running the books or anything, but you know, when it comes to stuff like that, the the margins are pretty thin you know they're like most retail markup or whatever but like a big thing with comics is they're not returnable for the most part and so two months ahead of time a store goes okay spider-man 627 is coming out in two months we've got to put our order in and you just have to guess as a shop like all right we want 100 copies of this, whatever it happens to be and book comes out and let's say it's crazy popular some big event happens you didn't know about ahead of time you sell it instantly. And you just can't get more because it's sold out and reprint won't be there for months. The flip side, you're like, all right, let's order 100 and it's just terrible and you sell 12 of them. Well, now you're sitting on 88 copies that you can't sell that you've paid for and are just stuck with. Mm-hmm. And so if you, you know, let's just assume you get a 50% success rate on what you order versus what you've left over and your profit margins, roughly 50% or whatever, you know, like now you're at a break even point on that product. And so like things like ordering the right quantities of things is super tough. Knowing what book's going to blow up or not is super tough. Right. And uh yeah, it's just, it's, it's a tough industry. And it's one of those things where, You know, if you don't have someone, someone's going to go find it on eBay or if there's another shop or wherever, you know, whatever it happens to be. So there's this really hard guessing game of we want to make sure we have enough of these for our customers, enough for the rack that we can, like, sell out eventually but not immediately so that we're not missing it when it blows up or whatever, things like that.
0: Wow. uh, I've never had to work in a true retail environment. I worked at Take Two Video for a while. Sure. And so we had like a, a, you know, buy-sell component in there. Um, But it's also not something where you say like, okay, well, I'm going to get into the boat industry because boats are big ticket items. I mean, he's hoping to move probably like a couple hundred comic books a day or a week, you know, something like that. Um, But you, you, you brought up something. So you played the Star Wars card game. Yep. Uh, what other card games have you played over the years?
2: Uh, I mean, I have probably played in some capacity 80% of the card games produced from Magic through the early 2000s. Uh, used to just love finding the weird idiosyncrasies with different games. I have a cousin in Nebraska that's just a couple years older than me, and we used to, for birthdays and Christmas, always just buy each other like a pair of starter decks for random game X, Y, or Z. So regularly and competitively, it's been Star Wars and Magic, but I've dabbled in, you know, Probably thirty or more. Just about everything. Games. Yeah. Um, so
0: I I've been surrounded by people who love magic for years. I've actually never played Magic the Gathering. Walk me through how it works at the beginning.
2: As far as like the the basics of how yeah. the game works, yeah. whatever is thematically is both players are what they call planeswalkers. You're kind of like dimension hopping wizards that can jump from from universe to universe and Mathematically you are summoning, you know, magical energy or mana from wherever you're fighting and summoning monsters, dragons, zombies, goblins, whatever, and you're using magical spells, each other, and you're trying to each player has 20 life points and you're trying to knock the other player to zero before you run out.
0: Sure. That sounds pretty simple to me, but I understand it's incredibly complex and it's incredibly uh, do you have to be slightly devious to
2: play, but to be good at magic? I would say yes. I mean, it, a comparison that comes up a lot, which I think is pretty accurate, is that as far as strategically, things like that, it's like a game of chess. But before you sit down, there's 150 different chess pieces, and each player gets to select the 16 they're going to use secretly. And then you sit down and have to now adapt on the fly to... Executing your game plan versus reacting to your opponent's game plan. But, you know, even more than chess factoring things like poker where you're dealing with a lot of hidden information where your your opponent has a card of hands you can't see, you have a card of hands they can't see. So there's a lot of once both players know what they're doing, and this is, you know, much like poker that way, if both players know what they're doing, there's all these avenues for all right, if I attack my smaller guy into your bigger guy, that represents I've got some way to either make my guy extra big or kill your guy or whatever. And so I may not have that, but I'll bluff that I do to try to get in a free attack. And so there's these like layers of of bluffs and double bluffs that go into it like poker. But you know, if you're as players learn when you play against like somebody new, they don't know how to read any of those bluffs. And so I've watched guys at a tournament run a really straightforward bluff and their opponent goes okay i don't i don't even know i'm supposed to know you have a card in your hand so there's like i'll just block my bigger guy and your smaller guy and kill it and they're like get really mad because they're like oh it's such an obvious like he's not supposed to do that but you know much like poker you could you can bluff a hand and if your opponent's been playing for three weeks they're not gonna know what it is you're representing but so do you think that people who've
0: grown up with magic are better in negotiations and boardrooms
2: i probably i think there's a lot of you know skills that transfer over as far as critical thinking adaptive thinking um
1: risk assessment
2: a lot of risk assessment you know i have a, a good friend of mine as uh, a pro player he was the player of the year in 2010 um for the whole world and he famously would love, you've got a 60-card deck and you've got a 15-card sideboard that you play best of three match in between games two and three. You can swap cards out of your your extra stuff to kind of make your matchup better. And he would, every single card, like he would just iterate decks hundreds and thousands of times changing one card here, one card there to figure out the exact you know right thing. And so he has this skill set where he's willing to just put in these hours and hours and hours grinding out to find that two percent edge that you know someone didn't have, whereas other guys it's coming up with those broad concepts of a deck or whatever. And so there's there's a very huge carryover too of guys that like play magic that end up working in finance or end up working in, you know, gambling in other areas and stuff that have a higher potential return, but a lot of the skills they learned playing magic transfer it right over. And so what's the What's the deal with the
0: cards? So you buy card packs and some of them have rarer cards in them and some of them have more generic cards?
2: Yeah, the the average – the breakdown has probably changed slightly. But you get a 15-card pack. You get 11 of them are common cards that are kind of just your generic chaff aren't really worth anything. Three of them are uncommon. They're a little more rare. Then they've got one card in the pack that's a, a rare or a mythic rare that are the, the harder to get ones. And So any given set, say 300-some randomly assorted cards. And whenever you buy a pack, you know, you're getting that distribution of rarities, but you don't know what cards you're going to get. And so based on how good they are, what cards are in demand, cards go up and down in value too. I mean, there are guys that make a living treating magic card value, like stocks. And they just, there's a whole magic, the gathering finance community that are just, they literally have stock tickers for card values and are trying to find edges and like, Oh, this box is old and really cheap right now you should buy it because it's going to go back up because this card is going to be good if whatever happens and it's nuts and like again those guys could probably make way more money actually trading stocks rather than magic right. cards that are less volatile but on the flip side and this has happened um, there's been a development in the last handful of years you know there's no sec regulating magic finance and so there have been multiple occasions where a, a consorted group of people will go we think there's an inefficiency with this card that's been out of print for 15 years. And if we just buy the supply up, we'll quadruple the value of it. And the so they, and will, they will go through and they'll literally buy out every online retailer in one shot so that no one knows it's happening. And then they now control 90% of the liquid supply. And then they just relist them on eBay and other sites that quadruple what they paid for them. Right. And it, you know, if there's times it's been unsuccessful. There's been numerous times that they've like pulled that off too.
1: What, what is the deciding value though? Is it the, the the power of the card within the game or is it the rarity of the card? Because they, if they've, they, they've got all 90,000 of the gold dragon of Targoth. I don't know any characters, so I'm just saying that, but I bet that's one. Um, and uh, so uh, is it Wizards of the Coast? Yep. Uh, go, let's print off more of the golden dragon of Targoth at the same ability within the game. It's just not the one that was printed ten years ago. Which thing gives it more value? Uh,
2: it's a mixture of all of them. It's there are cards that are just old and iconic that aren't necessarily like great, but the quantity is so low, especially really early in the game. You know, there was no card game market before right. Magic. Like they they invented the genre, and so the first couple of printings are are very small. So pretty much any card of even like moderate. Playability level or, like, iconic status in the game holds quite a bit of value. And the, the upper echelon are worth crazy sums of money. Um, but as far as the, like, wizards deciding, like, hey, we want to make more of these, there kind of isn't anything stopping them um, from either just straight up reprinting the card or reprinting the exact same card but with a different name. Which makes it technically a different card, but God, it's in, almost
1: like Magic the Gathering is like a fiat currency. It, it really is. It's so
2: like there's there was a whole thing where early in the game's run, but the fifth set that came out, they reprinted the bulk of the expensive, hard to find cards early in the game when it blew up. They're like, oh, we're gonna make a ton of. We're, we're literally printing money here. We'll just print all the expensive cards everyone wants to buy it. Well, what happened was it just like crashed the value on everything. And it caused a lot of panic of people going like, hey, if you can just do this, like there's, we have no faith as far as, you know, currencies. We have no faith in the value of any of this because they're, they're literally just cardboard right? they have no inherent, virtually no inherent value to them. And so they, at the time, made what they called the reserved list. And it was these cards will never print again. Mm. And for a stretch of times, it was these cards on the list and then moving forward every set, like we won't reprint the rares out of that set ever again and at some point they realized like this is dumb for us because we need to like you know we're smarter now we know how to not crash the market and we're just cutting ourselves off of being able to reprinting a a card people like and that was expensive is an easy way for them to make a bunch of money because they're like hey you know buy the new set crack your packs and you've got a chance at getting iconic card x y or z and so that reserve list that's often what those groups that are buying cards out is they'll target things on the reserve list. So they know that they can't be reprinted. So they yeah. know the supply is locked um, and they're dealing with a finite quantity, but that was a thing I had a, you know, collection. I had what what's called a cube and it's just like a box of an, 600 cards or whatever that you, there's a format called Booster Draft where instead of building a deck ahead of time, you everybody up at the table opens up one pack at a time. You each take one card out of it secretly, pass it to your neighbor, take the next pack coming to you, take a card, and you build your deck on the fly that way. And it's it's a really cool format because you're not limited by whoever spent the most money on cards before you sat down. You have to adapt on the fly to, hey, these are the strategies that look like they're better or worse in this singular event that'll never exist otherwise based on cards that i've seen there's some gambling of if i pass this around it when it comes back to me is that card going to be there that card and you're kind of trying to guess what the people around you are doing and it's, it's a really fun format and so cube is one where you build a box of just the best cards in magic and you replicate that experience but instead of cracking open sealed product. You just make virtual packs, you draft them. And when you're done, you just put them all back in the box. And, um, that was the bulk of what my collection was for the long time. And so it was as a collection of the best cards in the game, they were also the most expensive cards in the game. And so I had cards that I had bought and five years later had quintupled in value. I had other cards that I had bought and then they reprinted and were now worth 25% of what I paid for them. And so, you know, it's, when dealing with current stuff, it's a very volatile. I, the guys that do the finance stuff, I they have more stomach for it than I do. because but you used that to help
1: finance your house, didn't I, you? I
2: did, yeah. When I sold it, it it became the bulk <laughs> so of the cool. down payment for our house. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, so uh,
0: you don't have to answer any of these. But what's the most you've ever paid for a card?
2: Um, I, for me, it was probably hundred-ish bucks probably a little bit more than that but do you remember what the card was I don't I'm trying to think a lot of I got kind of lucky a lot of the cards that I bought that were expensive I bought before they got expensive and yeah. then they they blew up afterwards um, but I feel like there's a handful of like older cards that I was getting that I eventually just pulled the trigger on a big thing too um is that a lot of shops paradoxes is a lot of the bigger shops do where you can trade in your cards and get store credit to like buy other cards with. And so there's a couple of times where there's one point specifically, there's a shop called Channel Fireball out of San Jose that which is the Coast had announced a new format that made a bunch of cards all of a sudden spike in value that are older and they're like, hey, we really want these. You know, players are like, oh, we need these now to play in this format. And so I took that as an opportunity, sold a bunch of cards at their absolute peak value, and then traded them into a bunch of cards that had static value and then only went up in price and so like there were probably a couple 120 dollars cards like in that that i didn't technically pay cash for but traded cards into cash for oh that's very cool that's yeah, very so, cool
0: so what's the minimum number that wizards of the coastal print of a single card like they have they ever done an addition to where like just one of these things are out there they
2: they don't, they don't release their actual numbers, um, their print runs or anything like that. They will do very limited products. Um, generally, one thing that's great about Wizards is some companies like Yu-Gi-Oh! as the other, like the number two card game, they will historically like make a card, a, they've got like 10 tiers of rarity and secret ultimate ghost rare or whatever is like the hardest one to get and like one in a thousand packs has one or whatever. The, I, that number's not quite right, but something like that. And those cards are always just like, so much better than every other card that you need them to compete, but then they will, five months down the road, reprint it in just a pre-constructed deck you can buy where you always get one copy of that when you buy that deck for $12. And so, like, they, they crash the value of that card immediately. And Wizards, thankfully, never makes things super, super scarce like that. Or other games will do things where if you win a tournament, like, you win the national championship, you get the top eight players get a card that you literally only get from that tournament. And so, like, there are eight of them in circulation, and those are you know worth a ton. and Wizards won't do that, but they'll do limited edition products with pretty small print runs. But they're just like alternate art versions of cards or things like that that functionally work the same as the one you can get out of a pack, but but have cool collector's value or things like that. Sure. Are there,
1: are there any Magic cards that are passed down like a Valyrian steel sword, generation to generation on the mantelpiece that they're only eight of them in the world and it's like, oh, one of the Valyrian swords is with this guy.
2: There I mean, there's there's one, the very first world champion in ninety-six, I think. Um, the very first world champion got a as a trophy, the like nineteen ninety six world champion card that's like in like a plexiglass plaque or whatever, but like that's literally a one of one. Or the other like super scarce ones, kind of like that, are the Richard Garfield, the creator of the game used to make custom cards to celebrate like life events for himself. So mm. he did for a, an engagement announcement, like had a special card made that was like about two players, like joining their decks into one deck or whatever. Nice, like nice, they don't, they don't actually work, but like they were handed out to just a small subset of people. Or when he had a kid, they had a card for that as well. And so like, those are probably the scarcest ones past that, you know, not quite Valyrian steel level, but in the the original set, there are nine cards that are just so much more powerful than anything else they've ever done. That have been dubbed the Power Nine. Um, Black Lotus being the most iconic Magic card of all time, and you know early versions of that in great condition are ten grand or more. And so, well, like some of those, <laughs> some of those, you know, I'm sure have situations like that where they're in safety deposit boxes and will likely be passed down to kids or whatever. But you know, for the most part. Nothing's like ultra scarce like that how do you ensure authenticity in the magic world That's a wonderful question, yeah, that uh, seems like
1: they'd be really easy to rep like make fake versions of something if it's made of paper
2: they like they have a very specialty paper system they use um There was a scare a handful of years ago, five, six years ago of Chinese counterfeits flooding the market, and there were these rumors of like they they cracked the code. They figured out how to make these and they're gonna flood the market. And so there's just there's a short period of panic where people were like, well now I, I can't just like go get old cards and trust they're gonna be fine because they'd be really easy to counterfeit. And for the most part, and this could have changed since I've been paying super close attention, but I don't think it has for the most part the counterfeits the 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 texture's just wrong. They they have this kind of like almost satin finish on them and the counterfeits almost to a fault are glossier. Um, They, there are tests you can do. Um, There's a test called the bend test where if you take a card and let's see the top right and bottom left corners, if you curl the card to have them touch a magic card will spring back and a counterfeit won't you run the risk of, creasing a card doing that so it's not you know advised that you do it right. uh but you'd be some, creasing a counterfeit wouldn't you you would be but there's there's a chance if you don't do it exactly right you could crease a real card okay. too okay. um there are tricks a lot of like high end traders actually have jeweler's loops they bring with the little magnifiers and you can tell based on the printing pattern whether a card's legitimate there's a black light test you can do wow that i can't remember the difference between a magic a real card and a counterfeit one will light up differently than the other or The one that is is a test but is not functional for checking for counterfeits is if you tear a magic card in half, there's this blue – one of the layers of the card in the middle is blue. I don't know why. I don't know what the material is. They've never released it. But, like, (laughs) the counterfeits are never blue. But, like, the only way you can tell is if you literally tear the card in half, which – if it's a real card, then you've destroyed. And if yeah. it's a fake card, then whatever. Um, I had a friend that visited China and bought me a pack and didn't realize that it was a counterfeit pack. And I loved it because like the cards are twice as thick. They were really glossy. They were smudged. Like there was just no world where you would like think they were real. But I kind of loved that it was just this like, really shoddy Chinese knockoff of a thing. And he just thought he was buying me a pack of Chinese magic cards. Um, but there, that's the fear is that at some point someone will crack the code and if they do then they also are effectively printing currency um and if that ever happens it's going to cause a lot of you know confidence issue in in the authenticity or providence of cards and i don't know what the solution is when that happens but at least so far all oh, the the worst you know the sky is falling is never really materialized in anything
0: what about uh somebody like myself could i walk into paradox and buy a couple of packs and compete with somebody or is it to the point of where I would need to find other people who are brand new to the game to really be able to get something out of it
2: that i mean yes for the most part playing with people at a similar skill level investment level whatever um so i'm going to be playing gonna with gonna a bunch of even. sixth
0: graders you, pretty much you
2: could be um
1: it should have got a gotten into those table games at Trollwood back in the day. JJ, I know. Which uh, Alex Davy was always running. Like at Trollwood all the time. I he was always with the magic kids at the table.
2: I believe I totally believe that. Um the like on a tournament level, you know, the average competitive deck, if you're just going to go buy the cards from a store, is going to probably run you $500 or more. Um, So if you just go buy some random packs, you're just not going to be at the same level. Friday Night Magic is like kind of the big event of the week um, every Friday at 6 o'clock, and that event is generally big, and as a result of being big enough, you've got the top-end guys that are playing really competitive decks, and the lower half of the event is just people playing similar situations like that. And the way the tournament systems work, that's great, is it always pairs people with a matching record. So the end of round one, all the one and o players play each other, all the zero and one players play each other. So like after a round or two, it's you're pretty much clustered by people in the same skill level, investment level, whatever. Um, but you can also do uh They're like they make pre-constructed decks that again are not like tournament tier off the bat, but if you're just playing with some friends are an awesome way to do it, where you have a deck that more or less works and they're designed. They strategically do a thing I love where they deliberately will put in cards that are generally generously we'll say suboptimal. We won't call them bad. We'll just say they're not as good as other ones you could be, because they want part of the the process being like Hey, I really like it when I draw this card, but I don't really like it when I draw that card. And so you start going like, oh, if I get rid of the bad card and put more of the good card in, like my deck just got better. And um so like that'd be, you know, a, a good way. There's also formats where you can like only play with those common level cards, so the decks are a lot cheaper, things like that. But but if you were just to go buy some random stuff and jump into a tournament right away, like it's it's not gonna be a level playing field.
0: Have they ventured out with this type of card game like has wizards of the coast ventured out to say okay well we're gonna make a game and it's the same mechanics as magic but it's going to be you know a a chicago gang fight uh and you, you know it's the al capone deck have they
2: done anything like that in the past that you know about wizards has used the magic system or similar to the magic system a couple of different times they had a really streamlined version of it, they called The Arc System, and this was, like, probably late 90s, early 2000s, early 2000s, um, that they licensed it to the Hercules, Kevin Sorbo, Hercules TV show, (laughs) Zena. Kevin Sorbo, who went to school at MSUM. Yep, local connection. Uh, Zena and then Jim Lee made a comic called C23 that was this, like, future sci-fi of this, like, kind of, like, space marines versus bugs like the story isn't that's it, been isn't done it 100 cute times. when
1: illustrators start their own comic it's so isn't it's it so cute? adorable <laughs> so there's
2: like it's like an eight issue miniseries i played c23 uh, that's one of those weird games that like i got into because it was fun and streamlined and one of the hundred times that omni went out of business they like clearance stuff out so we bought like probably got a couple thousand c23 cards and because i thought the universe was kind of cool but like I specifically remember, like, issue three of the comic came with a, like, alternate art version of, like, one of the best cards in the game and and stuff like that. So, like, they've done that. They've done.
1: I, I think what J.J. is getting at is have they made a card game with musicals yet?
2: There's not a musical game, no.
1: J.J., you got to get on that, man. Yeah,
2: it's an untapped market right there. Yeah,
1: Broadway, The Gathering. Yeah, uh... <laughs> You have tapped <laughs> Hamilton.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so uh, another question I have with this this whole Magic the Gathering thing is what about the advent of digital play systems? So if I'm not mistaken, at one point on my PS3 and the PlayStation Store, there was a Magic get, like video game that you could buy. Um, how is that? How does that play into this world?
2: So, they're for the longest time, they had a PC-only version called Magic: The Gathering Online. Very clever uh, name, and that hasn't been updated since about 2004. And it looks like it. It's a really <laughs> archaic interface, uh, but it's the it's the truest way of playing Magic online. You buy booster packs, get random cards just like you do normally. Uh, you can there's a whole in-game economy where people you can sell cards and get gold that you then use to buy more cards whatever um but it hasn't ever been updated because it keeps making money and wizards on a couple different things go like if it's successful why should we invest more into it but they just released a new online version called Magic: of The Gathering Arena that's a supposed to be you know be more competitive with say Hearthstone that's come up since that's a digital first experience and it still is magic through and through but it's it's more polished looking it it plays a little bit faster but to be fair, compared to games like Hearthstone or there's a game called Eternal that's designed by a bunch of former Magic pros, uh, I I personally think are just better digital experiences because there are things that Magic has to do as a remnant of th- this paper game that's existed for 25 years that they can't get rid of that make for a less compelling digital experience. And so Eternal really like feels like Magic 2.0 uh, despite not being made by you know, anyone who currently works on Magic the Gathering. Do you think that we'll see
0: a world where your magic you get your magic card and at the bottom you've got like a twelve digit code and you can have a digital version of that card as well as the physical version, just the same way that they're doing with things like DVD and Blu-ray media.
2: They there was a game a while ago that tried something similar to that and you know it was a game that just didn't last or that that mechanic didn't happen. But Uh, Warhammer actually has a card game that either just it's just coming out, just came out that has that exact mechanic where all of the cards have like little QR codes on them. And so you buy a pack of physical cards and then you get to just scan them into your digital collection immediately as well. And uh, I think that mechanic is awesome. I I,
0: I mean, I like it because then I can play it with people across the country if I want to, but I can still also go down to places like Paradox and play it with people in a real, right. you know, human experience. Or even
1: on like when we were on the road for Poker Night, there were four—I think three or four—people at Poker Night who played Magic regularly. So they'd bring their decks with them. But if you could have like a digital version of your deck that you just bring on your phone and then play that way, then you're not risking all that stuff. Brian, you—you you did one, uh, didn't you? You were a judge in Japan, right, for yes. a Magic the Gathering tournament.
2: Yeah. How did that happen?
1: So, how do they go? We want you to come in and be like, yes, no to a group of angry competitive nerds.
2: um, So, I I guess started judging while working at Paradox, of you know, we needed someone to run events. I had ref soccer earlier and like just always cared about running events well, making sure they were done like to the letter of the law. And so, they have a very elaborate, intensive certification process to become a magic judge where you have to there's i think it's changed now but at the time at least there were five t- levels of judges ranging from your level one judges kind of just ran events at stores and whatever to level five were like employees at wizards who wrote policy but like the magic Rulebook, the real magic rule book the comprehensive rule book is like a 300 some page document of just like it's like legal text effectively it's super super in-depth there's all these like Subsection, you know, 11.B on a thing, yeah. how this rule interacts, whatever. So I started judging at Paradox. Uh, closest judges they could test were in Minneapolis or Madison. So I'd go down to Minneapolis for events, got certified, got to a level two judge and uh, was doing events. Locally, regionally, you know, going to running events in Minneapolis, things like that, um, had worked on some national level events in Chicago, Minneapolis, um, a couple other places around the country. And then world was going to be in Chiba, Japan in 2010. And Japan had always been like number one on my list of countries. I wanted to go visit at some point. Hell and yeah. that was the year that my friend Brad Nelson, uh, was going to win player of the year and going into the Worlds as the final tournament of the year was in December And as long as like a catastrophic series of events didn't happen, he was going to win player of the year at the event. And we had a mutual friend that was also living in Japan at the time teaching English. So it was this perfect, like, let's make a Japanese vacation out of this. And so I had applied. And for a lot of events, they have a system where a number of judges get either their room and board comped like their hotel rooms comp for the event and or they get travel expenses comped. And so like for a lot of events locally, one year nationals was in Chicago and I was able to get travel comped. So like I went down to the car of four other guys locally that were playing. And so like I paid for all of our gas to and from, which meant I didn't have to pay for a hotel. So I got like effectively got my trip for free um, that way. And so I applied for Japan and applied for compensation and didn't get it. Either way, which, you know, there's a limited number that can. And then they had just an open application set up where it's like anyone else who wants to apply to come out here on your own dime. Like you get compensated and you get sealed product and you get some, they did special promotional versions of cards that only judges got that you could then immediately flip for cash and things like that. And so I applied for it and got it. And so, um, thankfully Brad had been winning a ton of money playing magic that year and like loaned me the money to get a plane ticket immediately. Um, so we could, so I could head out there and yeah. So then I went out and worked the main event for the world championships. I was actually on the staff, the small staff of maybe 10 people that were running the top eight, like final day of the tournament. So there's online video footage of me, like making rulings, whatever on there. But the flip side too, is it's, they make this huge events. So it's a huge, it's like where they have like the J- Japan auto show and this huge, convention space. And so there's a million other events happening. And like one of the first days I was there, I was running an event for 120 people, something like that. And 90% of them were native Japanese people. And the the other 10% were from Eastern Europe somewhere. And the bulk of what I did, I had a translator. So when I had to do announcements, I had to write them out ahead of time. And there were a couple of judges that spoke English and Japanese. And so they could translate. And this was, you know, I didn't have pre iPhones being really available. So like there's none of those translation tools existed mm. at all. But so I had to write my announcements out so that he could like relay them. I was speaking to about 10 people. He was speaking to about 110 people for me. Um, but the bulk of what I was doing in the tournament was translating Japanese cards to english from memory for the eastern (laughs) european players and i thankfully just had a brain that kind of worked that way and so i there was a stretch where you could show me the picture of a card and i could tell you what it did there's a shortcut too where japanese like you know uses kanji but it uses arabic numerals so like you'd see a card and the text would be a string of kanji you can't read they'd be like the number five yeah. So if you're like, I can't remember if that was like deals four damage or deals five damage, like you at least had those numbers as reference points. But yeah, the bulk of that event was spent like just translating cards from memory from Japanese to English for like the 10 Eastern European players and stuff like that. It was just like, it was a super cool experience. It was, you know, just nuts. And so worked the main event and then we turned it into like about a week long vacation um, afterwards. And which was a little more sad than we had intended because that string of catastrophic events that had to happen did happen. Oh my God. And it like literally came down to the guy who was in second place, Brad had to finish like outside of the top 100 players, which hadn't like happened at an event for him that year. And he finished at like 103 or something. He oh. was like, just, uh, just missed the cut. And the guy who was in second had to win worlds, which he did. So they tied. It was a tie. It never happened before. And so they had this like crazy playoff at the next pro tour event in Paris in like February of the next year. But so what was supposed to be this, like we, we, took a train to Tokyo and we're going to spend a week in Tokyo like celebrating it was just like still super fun but like much more somber than it should have been because <laughs> he now didn't win and has to like now like start prepping for this event to try to win which he eventually won and, and became the player of the year that year but yeah it was a, it was a super super cool experience
0: oh wow that is you know Sometimes people forget this, right? There are people out there who are like,
2: God damn it, I didn't get a goddamn
0: deer tag. (laughs) Uh, And their world is ending, but other people are traveling across the globe to compete in something, and the smallest uh, little tiny piece can be a catastrophic hitch in their giddy-up. I also think that while people will write off certain parts of nerddom like Magic the Gathering and be like, oh, God. Um, They don't realize how important it is to the economy, how important it is to the community. I mean, it's great that you're going out there and hunting, and I don't know why I'm picking on hunters all (laughs) of a sudden, but I really am. But you are a drop in the bucket to what is being created out there, dollars and cents-wise, with something like Magic the Gathering.
2: It's weird, too, with, like, Speaking of just being unaware of, you know, things like when we started carrying Warhammer at, at Paradox, whenever that was, while I was working there, something I was aware of, but that was it. And like, had kind of pulled in, just started doing a little research into it and realized that like, you know, there are thousands of Warhammer dedicated websites that just didn't know existed. You doesn't realize that like, you know, the internet is so much bigger than the 25 sites that you go to on a regular basis or like with to kind of link it to hunting ish, um, was like with my cube, I was looking for a sturdy case to travel with it. Mm. Because like when, you know, when it's more than five grand or whatever, like you don't want it just in a cardboard box. And so I started like looking for cases and stumbled into the world of sniper rifle enthusiasts, <laughs> which is a weird corner <laughs> of the internet that I don't really advise anyone spend any time in. But I was like, I guess, you know, they've got rifles that are worth $12,000 and more, like, they probably know what they're talking about. So, like, I spend this time, like, in message boards and stuff for sniper rifle enthusiasts and, like, there's a lot of, like, really thinly veiled, like, talks about hunting. You're on a list somewhere now. I probably am. (laughs) You know, just, like, weird, like, describing, like, how accurate their guns are from distance and, like, Talking about hunting, but you could tell they really weren't talking about hunting. Working and at a chainmail
1: spot was like the second mark against you. Like, not only is he looking for <laughs> sniper rifles, he's trying to arm himself from harm.
0: Well, okay, yeah. so were you looking for sniper because of their
2: cases? Cases, yeah. So I was just looking for cases and came across Pelicans, a company that you know we used at Poker Night for everything, and like, they're like, these things are awesome. They're indestructible, and I ended up buying a case that never quite worked for what I wanted. The size, just like. It was a little too small for when I wanted, but the next size up was gonna be way too big. Um, but had it had it worked, it would have like been a great case. So thanks, sniper rifle enthusiasts. <laughs> but but as far as, you know, like there's a there's a whole corner of a of a hobby that I just had, you know, no idea existed to the way that it did. And and on the flip side, they had no idea that there was some weirdo who was looking at their stuff for his Magic the Gathering cards.
0: Oh, it's another one of them nerds.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Why do they always
0: find me on the internet? Um, well, okay, so you, uh, but you bring up These a good These guns point. are great for militias <laughs> and for Magic the Gathering players. <laughs> if the King of England ever comes over here, boy, howdy, he's in for a treat. First it came from my guns, <laughs> then it came from my Magic the Gathering <laughs> cards. <laughs> Level five fireball. Thanks, Obama. Um, so, we can still say that, right? I bet Obama played Magic
1: the Gathering at least once in his life. I doubt it because it came after he was already an adult in mm, his
2: life.
0: Yeah, but you know, he still he embraces so much. If like any nerdom. president
1: played Magic the Gathering, it was Barack Obama. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I, I'm willing to believe that. Uh, okay, Trump is
1: Candyland, <laughs> which is <a> predestiny, <laughs> predestiny,
2: as we have
0: already discussed in the previous said. podcast. Um, So here I am hearing you talk about this, and I'm thinking like, well, there's an opportunity here for more mainstream uh, companies to say like, you know what? We're going to embrace the fact that these guys are looking for a specialty case to carry their investment in. Why don't we start designing these things? Because I watch people walk into places like the Home Depot. And I can instantly identify someone who's into Magic the Gathering because I will listen to what they're asking for. Like, I need plexiglass cut like this and da-da-da-da. And be like, oh, man, they're building something. They're building something amazing right now. And I think that there's an opportunity out there for companies to make more money. I mean, of course, Wizards of the Coast know what players need. And so if they want to get into the carrying case game, which I imagine they probably have at some point, but... There are other opportunities out there for, you know, retired goldsmiths and Ada to get <laughs> into uh, a world that where there is a demand and they can have a specialty product.
2: There like, actually was a Kickstarter that I backed specifically for cube cases for that purpose. It was like a metal briefcase that was like velvet lined with dividers to fit all your cards and powder, like powder coated to a couple different colors and like. Had locks on it and was super cool. Unfortunately, like I ordered it, like all Kickstarters, it took like almost a year longer than it was supposed to to finally get developed. And it arrived within two weeks of me deciding to sell the cube so we could get a house. So I pretty much put the cube into it and never used it. But thankfully, a friend bought it and is using it for, you know, one of his things now. So it's at least still around. But it was this cool was white powder coated hot pink velvet inside. It was it was pretty fancy.
1: you got to imagine that when we are old and gray in the retirement homes of the future, just like they've got like every Tuesday we play Canasta. And every Thursday it's going to be Magic the Gathering night. get your teeth off the table (laughs) um okay so
0: let's talk about selling your cube yes to get the down payment for your house um if someone has listened to this entire podcast they know obviously this is something you're passionate about this is something that consumed a good chunk of your life was it a difficult decision
2: walk us through that yes and no um obviously difficult and that it was something that i had invested a ton of time in um and you know part of it like a cube too is that it's not only this collection of cards but every individual cube is a little bit different so it was curating this play experience too i spent a ton of time making really hard choices over like two cards out of the 540 like changing them things like that and so it was it was tough on that level i'd spent a ton of time doing it it was a great community event i had a bunch of friends that had like helped me out with cards, either donating them, giving to me for a good deal, things like that. I had a bunch of cards that I'd gotten like signed by artists at events and and things like that. Um, So on some level it was hard to get rid of it. On the other side of it was it was the only feasible way to get us over the hurdle of having enough money to get a down payment for a house, which is something that we really wanted. I joked about literally since I put the cube together in the first place was like, I'm never selling this other than maybe if I need to do it to get a house. It was like, I was kind Mm -hmm. of just like the joke throwaway line. And then it (laughs) came to be that that that's what it was. And so
1: I'll never ever travel to Japan unless I get a chance to be a judge in a magic tournament. My buddy's going to try to be player of the year.
2: Exactly. I just just throwing that stuff out (laughs) into the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, so it was hard to get rid of it. But at the same time, like I had with various jobs and stuff and using it less and less some other guys in town had also built cubes. So like, even if it wasn't quite the way I would have built it, it was at least a close enough experience. And like I said, the big thing just came down to is my wife and I really wanted a house and that was the way we were going to be able to do it. And so on that level, it wasn't hard at all. Um, Where'd you find a buyer? A, a mixture of people. Um, Rich was great and let me set up and kind of a vendor's table at a couple of events at the store. Um, so I went through and like, Used eBay and some other places. So no one to bought like, just no one bought your entire cube in one no, shot. No, it was just that was never going to happen because anyone who had enough money to buy a cube was going to want to make different choices than I did. Even things as simple as there's been five different versions of any given card, and they want the second printing instead of the third printing because the art's different. You know things like that. So anyone who would have enough money that wanted a cube and was willing to drop that much cash was just going to go build their own anyway um and so the bulk of it or i'd say 60 percent of it maybe a little bit more i sold to just variety of players who were just buying individual cards from me um and how then long did, how long did it take um it took it was probably about a month i went a couple different Whoa, times only a month and then well the the other half was in the, there was a guy um in town who was running a business just buying and selling magic cards and things like that and also had Some plans to buy, you know, build a cube or whatever as well. And so he ended up buying, once I sold through the first chunk of cards, he bought the rest off me, you know, gave him a deal for buying a chunk of it in bulk and I didn't have to deal with eBaying things and stuff like that. But so, so him buying a chunk of the, you know, the 30, 40% of whatever was left in one fell swoop really helped out. But otherwise it was a couple of different events over the course of a month that I sold the rest of it. Did you have a favorite card? Um, like this is sort of like
0: oh that's that's a brian move right there by playing this
2: there
1: that's so brian there I I mean, all the time that's so, so brian. brian
2: there are there's definitely like styles of decks if not specific cards that any given player gravitates to and so there are yeah there's a lot of in general and this is true of like board games anything i take more pleasure than i should in stopping anyone from doing anything um, you know, just if the game grinds to a halt and no one's having fun. I think that's kind of awesome sometimes. And so I have at times said, I'm like, I'm a fun vampire. And then I think <laughs> fun is zero sum and that I need to take all of it. Um, And so, so decks like that are things, there's a format called commander where you pick one, legendary character from the game um kind of our storyline characters whatever and you build a deck based on them Where like you could always they exist outside of your deck you can always play them from this extra zone but you can all these colors in your deck that are the colors of the the legendary guy you picked and there was a guy who his ability just made everything cost one mana more for everyone just made every, just attacks and everything the deck was just full of cards that taxed everyone on stuff and the win condition for that. There was a format that games took a couple hours. It was your multiplayer games like you used to play or, mm-hmm. you know, four or six people playing this huge game that would take a couple hours. And the way that deck won was there's a card called Shaharzad from Arabian Nights, like the second magic set, and you'd play the card and or no, sorry, it's called Divine Intervention from a set similar. Shaharzad was in that. That created a sub game where you set aside the main game your deck became the deck for a new game. You played that, and the winner of that game like gained 10 life back in the main game. Okay. So it just added a full game into the sure. middle of the game. Um, but then Divine Intervention is card you played, it had three counters on it. Start of your turn, you removed a counter. And if you removed the last one, the game ended in a draw. <laughs> and so the win condition is you just you'd grind the game down, no one could do anything. <laughs> you'd eventually play that thing, you'd make it a draw. And the way you would win is people wouldn't shuffle up to play the next game to determine who actually won. And like that deck brought me so much joy. It was <laughs> people either hated it or saw that card as like the funniest punchline ever, which is what it was supposed to right. be. Right? It's almost like
0: filibustering,
2: right? One hundred percent was filibustering. You're playing against
0: like a fourteen year old, and you're like, I know your mom's coming to pick you up
1: at ten, so all <laughs> I got to do is grind this out till nine fifty nine, bitch. Is there a like a card that's like a nuke that's like a, I play this that means I win?
2: Um there've been a couple cards like that they generally require you to jump through a ton of hoops and
1: to be able to play them in that session.
2: Yep, and in the and in that format specifically, the cards that do that tend to get banned if they're just like an instant I play this and I win. Um because the games go longer like it's easy enough to hit those hard conditions that you normally can't do in a 1v1 game, but yeah, so that deck like playing to the draw was just always the funniest thing in the world to me and again, people like either were like that deck's super funny and like liked the challenge of like I'm beating that deck this time. Like I'm gonna figure out a way to get around it. Or they were like, I hate you and you're the right.
1: worst. What about a game where it's two players but they only have lands?
2: There there is a there's a competitive deck. There's a format called Legacy that uses pretty much every card that's ever been printed other than like a small subset of really, really powerful ones that have been banned. Uh-huh. And there's a deck that in your 60 card deck that plays like 47 lands. Um, you know, is anyone
0: playing strip Magic the Gathering where you wear 12 pieces
1: of clothing? I'm
2: I'm
0: sure that it exists
2: somewhere. <laughs> it's definitely not happening at Paradox, I can tell you that.
1: JJ maybe used to have this. JJ used to have a large cachet of uh this kind of like it was like you you could make your own Monopoly board. Mm-hmm. Um, where you could fill it in and personalize it to whoever you wanted. Your own opoly is what it was called. So, is there a variation on a card game like that with a rule set where you could make custom Magic the Gathering cards of your friends just to play at home?
2: We um, there are a couple different like programs that exist. One's called Magic Set Editor that players you can use to just like make Magic cards. You kind of just put stuff into a spreadsheet. It spits out cards for you when you're done. And so there is a format somebody invented called a boo draft, which is build our own draft. And so like that booster draft format where everyone normally have three packs or 45 cards is each player would design 45 cards and then show up and you would just shuffle them all together and then do a draft with them. And it is super fun and also kind of miserable at the same time because (laughs) it's a format where there are so 360 cards at the table, all of which are different and all of which you've never seen. You've seen your 45, but you've never, the 315 other ones you've never seen before. So you have to literally read every card every time. There's no, you don't get to bring any knowledge with you. Um, So that makes it really hard. And amateur designers are much, much worse at designing fair magic cards than professionals. <laughs> yeah. And so it's very easy for people to make cards that are just stupidly powerful in the games, just like aren't fun because they're just too good. Um, but we did that a couple of times, and it's a ton of work, but is was a super fun experience to just, Bunch of like weird inside jokes. You'd pick a theme, like one guy just made a Call of Duty set. It was just every uh-huh. card was just Call of Duty
1: based. We need a JJ meets World card game.
0: I think we do. Yeah, and I think the most powerful card is Brian's beard. That's gonna happen <laughs> right here, right now. And whichever wizard dons Brian's I beard cast gets a Brian's plus beard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I tap the apt studio. <laughs> App by tap, I tap it. <laughs> uh,
0: no, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Like we should get a we should get a magic. A custom magic game happening at the
1: very least i like the idea of trading cards you know i never really was into card games very much obviously i play poker and i tried magic a few times i don't think i have ever won a game of magic in my life because all my friends who play magic were already playing it well before me they knew how it worked and i just didn't have a mind for the strategy but i was really into collecting just collectible superhero trading cards and i was really drawn to the earlier iterations where you'd look on the back and they would have stats like it was a baseball card Mm -hmm. and i would i would obsess over the stats on the backs of those cards and i want to have some sort of like fantasy football type game where we get to draft superheroes instead (laughs) because that's the that's the thing that i understand i don't understand what football is and how what they're doing when they're I was tackling, and I was just down in Las
0: Vegas, and there was a sports book that was we're taking odds on a Magic game. Hmm. I guess Twi- Twitch is a pretty popular place yep. for Magic now, so they must have like some big tournaments that take place. And uh, you know, knowing that like there are people putting money down
1: for this is pretty. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Like, this is now a legit sport. Embrace right. it, right? I if I I've recently discovered that I am actually a very big fan of UFC. <clears throat> even before the antics at 229. And, uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine about, do they have fantasy games for UFC? And he's like, well, you might as well just bet on who's going to win the fight versus, like, how many points they get. Although you could do a system like that. There is a sort of a rough point system, depending on how fighters do that. But um, I bring up UFC in sports because you wouldn't know it to hear him. But Brian can talk sports. All day long as much as he would want. He also has a very deep knowledge and understanding of let me see. I mean you, you know a lot about basketball and football, right?
2: Basketball not so much. Football and soccer, yes. Baseball, hockey, some. Okay. UFC there was a stretch where uh John Swenson, the store manager at Paradox, is a big UFC guy. So there was a stretch for a while where I was really following and watched most of the UFC fights for a couple of years. Okay.
0: Canada has two national sports. What
1: are they? Curling and hockey? Nope. Oh, wow. Really? Ryan, any guesses?
2: I mean, hockey has to be one, mm-hmm. but... Boxing? Nope. Th- those lumberjack competitions. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Canadian no, la- karate.
0: Lacrosse.
2: Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah, Hockey and lacrosse. The Canadian karate's third. That is the beginning, middle, and end of my sports knowledge. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, I was really into Kirby Puckett, and then we found out that he was kind of a douchebag. So that's too bad. I, I actually don't know. Is he was? I didn't. I don't know anything yeah, about him. A spousal abuser. Oh yeah. No. Ooh, is it the Roids? Which is really unfortunate because he was a hero to a lot right. of people who grew up in this area. I Wonder if it was the Roids. I don't know. Was he did, he? did he have steroids? Who knows? I mean, if he, if he's Kirby, a- Kirby Puckett was interesting because he was built. He was built kind of like a like a cartoon in a way because he had this barrel chest and like thick upper body, but he had those like thin little legs that
2: carried him so fast. <laughs> he was yeah. running so fast. Baseball has to have one of the most diverse, just like silhouettes of players looking at their body types, like because it's a pastime. because <laughs> a pastime.
0: Um. Well. So let's let's say this. Brian, will you join us again in the near future, and we'll have a sports episode? Sure, that'd be great. Okay, you better come with a lot of stuff, because I'm not going to have much to talk about, It's going right? to be all <laughs> us just listening to Brian and yeah, <laughs> I'm talking that's like sports. So
1: what if the touchdown... Is the touchdown good when he kicks it? That's a... T- are <laughs> talking about What if he tennis, hits one right? of the forks?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh Brian, thank you so much for being a guest on JJ Meets World. We're gonna have you back very, very soon. And hopefully when we have you back, we can play our custom Magic the Gathering
1: <laughs> round. We'll need a judge. I, yeah. I
2: still know not certified anymore. I still know how to do that. But it won't okay. be we'll need in a Japanese, Japanese interpreter <laughs> too, because Yeah, translating <laughs> your custom cards from Japanese will be really fun. JJ <laughs> J- and I are gonna play
1: dirty too, so yeah. <laughs> we're gonna need a judge. That's
0: right. I'm gonna be spitting all over the table. I'm gonna s- Okay, is this cast mayonnaise? Is the worst thing you could do is spill a giant jug of water on a magic table? I
2: have seen things like that happen, and it's awful. Oh. Most most players in tournaments have, they make plastic protective sleeves that they put over their cards that help for a lot of damage from shuffling and dirt and grime on tables, but there's still an opening on one side and water finds its way in, so it's pretty awful. Have you ever
1: witnessed a Magic the Gathering slap fight?
2: I, have, I can't imagine I have it's more not, than that. no uh there are there' are specifically references like in the in the tournament or penalty guideline about like players fighting and or like deliberately spilling coffee on each other's cards as like examples but I've never witnessed a fight no.
0: I wish they should add a rule where at the end of it, if you are the loser, you get to take one card from the winner.
2: It used to be, from the very beginning rules, it was if you won, you got a card. At the start of the game, really? you each randomly That's removed. That's a hardcore
1: pog shit right yeah. there.
2: You randomly <laughs> removed one card from your deck as your ante, and then the winner got the ante. And There's a whole subset of cards that like would let you add an extra ante to the pool, but you like got to draw a bunch of cards in the game to try to win. So at the start of the ooh. game, you had to go,
1: are we playing for keeps? Are we playing for if, keeps? Because yeah, he had they, to say that, they, and you had to decide what slammers you were using. Uh-huh. And if we're playing for keeps, I'm not using that two-inch copper one. Nope, I'm using my ball-bearing <laughs> one my <laughs> uncle gonna, made me. I'm going <laughs> to use the one that's a dull buzzsaw with a, an eight ball on top of it, <laughs> and it's hologrammed. But I hope I don't lose that Red Ranger one I got from McDonald's. The coming up soon in all
0: Pogs episode <laughs> of J.J. Meets World. Uh, Brian, thank you very much, man. Good to know you.
2: Thanks for having me. J.J. Meets World.
0: Well that does it for this episode folks Thank you so much for tuning in to JJ Meets World And remember you can tune in twice a week Mondays and Thursdays we have brand new episodes If you want to catch up on old episodes Gosh there are over 50 episodes that you can catch up on So many hours of great content And all of it is absolutely free and available for download in any country in the world Recently Australia finally allowed us to start streaming there so here's the deal. We'd love it if you would support us in the creation of JJ Meets World, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash jjmeetsworld. A couple of bucks here couple of bucks there it all adds up and we have so many great listeners tuning into every single episode if everyone gave a dollar boy oh boy we could upgrade our equipment i could finally fire tucker and get a real producer in here it would be really really good for all of us uh by the way tucker is uh, sickly and has a crutch he's been using and it's like a tiny tim kind of crutch from a christmas carol So we'd like to get him to a specialist uh, somewhere. So the Patreon dollars will also help with that. By the way, you can also uh, subscribe to every single episode on any of the formats that you choose to consume podcasts with, such as iTunes or Spotify, Google Play. Hit the subscribe button and you'll be up to date on every episode. And by the way, a review also goes a long way. Thank you to everyone who's already given us a review. It really means a lot. If you want to catch up with my producer extraordinaire, Tucker Lucas, you can go to his website, moonbasemaria.com. Or if you want to check up with me, your host with the most, go to linebenders.com. You can book my comedy troupe or, heck, you could just invite the JJ Meets World podcast to come and broadcast directly from your business or residence as long as you uh, – don't have too many cats. How many is too many? That's a discussion we'll have after you contact us. So I guess uh, as we wrap things up today, I just wanted to uh, want to say thanks to everybody. Usually I have a funny little quip at the end of this thing, but instead I just, I just want to give a sincere thank you to everybody who listens, and it means a lot. And I feel like you're part of my family, and I feel like I feel like I want to buy each and every one of you a copy of Forrest Gump for Christmas and it's going to be on VHS and i know that's an inconvenience cuz you probably don't own a vcr anymore but i mean that's the best format to watch Forrest Gump in full screen so if you watch on your your big tv it's going to look weird but we'll be together